Hi, I'm Campbell. And this is Get With The Programme, the podcast for people who literally can't get enough of TV. You watch it with your eyes, but you're also listening to it now with your ears. And you want to know, how can I, maybe how can I make it, or how can I deepen my understanding? A bit like when you learn about poetry at school, and that bit before it, you, it gets ruined, because you, you're analysing it too much. Oh, I see, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. this is this is the early stages of poetry for yeah. people who love TV. This is a fun amount of critical theory. Yes, and good chat, which this week is Campbell talking to Ed Crick. And I can't think of anyone better. When we were thinking about starting this podcast, Ed was definitely at the, the, the top of my, my hit list. Um, he has been a fantastic um, speaker for us um, on the schemes, particularly for Wants to Watch. He himself... Um, did once to watch in a, in a previous incarnation and I was just thinking why is this particular podcast going out on February the 14th Holly? Uh, so because today the day the podcast is going out is Valentine's Day uh, I thought Ed would be a suitable person to feature because he met his now wife Natalie Humphreys on uh, once to watch uh, so romance blossomed on the schemes and it could also blossom for you if you register for the network and want to watch, which are currently open at the moment. Romance not guaranteed, but great times definitely yeah. will happen. Um, so if you are interested in starting your career in TV, uh, you should register for the network. Um, you can find out plenty of information about um, how to apply, what kind of things we're looking for, and all the stuff that will happen while you're on the scheme at www.thenetwork-tv.co.uk or if you're kind of slightly more embedded in the industry you've got a few years under your belt and you're looking to take the next step in your tv career you can get all the comparable information before our more senior scheme wants to watch at www.wantstowatch-tv.co.uk so that's all for now um i'll leave campbell to uh, introduce a little bit more about ed Yes, so Ed is uh, head of non-live content at Red Bull Media, and obviously Red Bull is a really interesting example about how television and content is changing. Um, and Ed also has a fantastic track record in kind of international in the international side of television. So if your kind of ambitions sort of spread beyond uh, the UK, um, Ed is a fantastic person to listen to and learn from. So um, I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did doing it, and we will see you next week. Thank you very much for joining us, Ed. We're going to be talking about TV today, obviously. What does the word television mean to you these days? Um, well, uh, it still means a place for sort of family viewing and for collective viewing and big screen uh, and probably... Uh, lean back, which is quite an old-fashioned phrase now already, but that's what TV probably means, although it still is a catch-all for quality storytelling. But broadly speaking, as we all know, everyone watches content on a variety of devices now, so it's, it's less the device you watch it on. It's, maybe it's symbolic of the quality of production to a certain extent, I think. Fair enough. And does that description take you back to your early days, young Ed? Watching TV, were you were you a TV watcher as a child? Were you out running in fields? Were you doing a bit of both? Was it something you watched with your family? I was a TV watcher. We didn't have a telly until I was about seven. I grew up in the commune in the Isle of Dogs until I was about five or six. And then we got telly when I was about seven. It was a telly with a dial that you had to tune like a radio um, to even, well, 
not even modern radios, but that's radios then, and that's how TVs were, and you had to twizzle them around. Um, and I did, I love telly uh, from straight away. I jonesed on the cathode ray, uh, cathode ray tube um, nipple, I think. Cathode ray nipple, was that? That was Bill Hicks's description of TVs, <laughs> the cathode ray nipple. You chuck your kids on that. Um, and yeah, I did, loved it. I also was really into computer games early, uh, interestingly, because of course, those are, that's a big. Um, a competitor for the eyeballs of the youth yes. is gaming. But and I, you I used to plug it into TV as well, so it would very much be replacing. It's like I'm having to plug the thing. Would it be an Atari? Well, actually, the game I found, I found those games a bit boring. I've got my. We had a BBC Model B computer, and on it we had the game uh, Elite, and I used to be absolutely addicted to that. But when I was, like, I mean, I, I sort of, I mean, I, I remember watching telly. Obviously, kids' telly was only for about an hour on school nights and two hours on a Saturday morning, so you didn't watch as much. Um, you know, you'd watch uh, Sunday afternoon films, and you know all the classics from the you know black and white era would be on, and uh, Saturday night entertainment. Yeah, I mean, I, my family didn't sit down and watch Saturday night entertainment so much. We used to be out and about doing stuff in the evenings, but um, you know, I sort of think I, probably the earliest programs I would have watched are stuff like Campbellwick Green. But it's so, probably cooler to say the ones I remember are Battle of the Planets and uh, you know Why Don't You. Um, as programs that I really enjoyed when I was a kid, um, but no, I still love coming home from school and watching TV at four o'clock or three thirty until it was off at five, when you just could only watch the news and then it went off. And there was only three channels. Exactly, and it felt quite regimented back then as well. Like this is the period, and so that once it was five, I think we sort of transitioned into, I guess, neighbours at some point. But you felt very much like that block is over. Whereas now with dedicated children's channels, I feel there's a bit sometimes I'll be flipping after my daughter's gone to bed. And the stuff will still be on. You know, you can still watch things on, you know, CBBC and sort of like eight, nine, and the boundaries are kind of. Yeah, my, my kids watch, the, my youngest son will. It's even changed in the generation of my two children, who are 14 and 10, or our children, I should say. I made those children with my wife. Um, uh, she did the hard work. The, I, the older one watched CBBC, and they both watch CBBC. The older one watched CBBC. The younger one, now is 10, occasionally watches an entire series of CBBC but he he doesn't it's not appointment to view for him but he will find a show that he likes and watch every episode in it he'll binge watch kids TV that's how he consumes it that's interesting and you mentioned why don't you were there any programs you watched when you were younger that sort of lit a little fuse or planted a little seed that led to you obviously one day working in it and thriving in it well I, I was raised in quite a political household and I think in active politically active household and I always liked the news I actually wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to change the world and uh, make it a better place through exposing wrongdoing and uh, you know bad bad behaviors so I mean it would be from both a sort of in the newsy sense news round was great and BBC news but I suppose you could also argue that in drama those sort of methods of you know, standing up against the man were reflected in Knight Rider and the A-Team and, um, and as I got older in programmes like uh, Defence of the Realm and uh, Edge of Darkness um, Crime Watch even which you know don't have nightmares I did have nightmares I used to have nightmares I used to watch that at home aged about 13 when no one else was in the house parents were out and for the evening I'd be at home alone all night and I used to go to bed with a knife under my bed pillow uh, for fear that I was going to get you know attacked which of course you were, but they were pretty scary reconstructions. They were. They were just, in a way, 
sort of quite flat and unemotional, which made them more harrowing in a way. Correct, it's because it's like they were saying, it's about the, when yeah. it's contextual. You yeah. feel like this could be me. It looks like an ordinary suburban house. Yeah, the, the very kind of non-actory actors yeah. sort of doing it. And yeah. Dallas didn't give you nightmares. Exactly. Crime watched it. Yeah, but people did get shot in Dallas. Yes, but so. I didn't live on a ranch. So you can, yeah, or, it's easy or, to or abstract. Or a 10-gallon hat. So yeah. Yeah, you did have a knife under your bed. I did, yeah. It was like a, yeah. it was a small one. I don't yes. want to use it. I don't want to give people the wrong impression. Here, no. I wouldn't have gutted the ins- insurgent. I might have done. Yeah. Oh, no. We're not advocating knife crime as, as, a, as a way to get into television. No, no. It's, I think it could work. I think it's, but it's not the, uh, it's not the first route in. There, is, there are easier routes. And did you have a sense, can, can you remember, so you said you want to be a journalist, what kind of age that been when you start thinking about that? Uh, well, there was also, of course, around that time, you had fun shows, that, like one of the good Moffat shows, I mean, uh, his early shows, uh, Press Gang, um, uh, so, which was good, uh, very good, I mean. Um, I don't know, I, well, I, was, I was into it from that age onwards, I was just aware of, it was more about campaigning against injustice, and then I trained as a journalist, and then, of course, I soon discovered I was going to spend the entire of my career working for Radio Mercia, Coventry FM, doing links off of the son of Terry Wogan, who did the financial news reports on a DAT tape from London. And uh, after two weeks, I quit that and um, decided that that was not a future that held much uh, promise for me. So you were able to sort of see where, where that might be going <laughs> and it wasn't, wasn't for you? Well, it wasn't for me. No, I mean, I think, you know, getting into, into breaking into journalism, maybe still now, actually less so now, because there's, a, there's a easier ways of self-publishing your news. And uh, I mean, even if it's fucking nonsense, like the Canary, you can get on with it. But um, then it would have been Fleet Street or BBC or ITV training and 99% would have come from Oxbridge and Connections. And that's not to say they weren't bright and talented journalists, but you know, there wasn't a route into that if you didn't have a, you know, if you didn't have a, uh, a side entry. Maybe still local newspapers, I think, probably was a route still there. And I did actually work for my local newspaper, but um, that, was, that, was, yeah, that was then and this is now. Any eye-opening stories from that time working on local newspapers? No, not really, no. apart from just how they always enjoy sending the young person to do the death knock, you know, and oh. death knocks are, are, are just completely unrequired, indulgent, just rites of passage from wizened editors who like to share the misery. So I could have worked for the Daily Mail, couldn't I? That would have been a different life story. That would have been a different life story. We probably wouldn't be talking now. We wouldn't be talking. Uh, so when you realised that journalism wasn't quite for you, how did you, how, did you have a, a real kind of rethink about it or did that sort of reveal to you what your next move would be and how did you start putting that together? Um, I, so I had the skills um, and then I were, funnily, well, you know, it's one of the reasons we're talking to each other today is my first media job was at Edinburgh TV Festival as a runner with a princely sum of £40 a week. Um, and I did that, and that was fun, and I got that through a friend, so it was, you know, contacts, but, you know, he put the word out to all of his pals, saying there's a job for a runner, and the only one who said, I'll, I'll try and do it was me, so, you know, six, he did create the opportunity, he'd worked as a runner in Soho for two years, so he'd, uh, he'd done the hard work, and I sort of shortcut that, I have to be honest, um, and went and did the running, and then at the end of it, I just assumed I'd get a job, I didn't actually apply for any, it turns out that's not the way you get a job, um, so then a whole year went by, I was working on building sites, and then I did it again, uh, and that year was a sort of researcher on the festival and then I applied for a hundred jobs and I got offered one on digital which was on the Squarial which was an ITV digital channel and they immediately made me an assistant producer working on a kids digital TV show called Digit or Digit and it was you know it's just dreadful like the ITV version of the WNA 
and all these slightly drunk older ITV staffers were running the show and it was being produced by us and I was going to be basically in charge of this daily show in Ealing and it was ridiculous um, because I didn't know anything and it was it was it would have just been a disaster um, and then I got a two-week job offer at the same time having started that job a two-week job offer at Diverse uh, one much less money with only two week tenure but I immediately took that job as a junior researcher because I just knew that that was an opportunity to actually learn from people who knew what they were doing so that th thanks to Roy Ackerman for that who, who um, remember he wrote on the CV that Ed wants to change the world and then spent the next two years that I worked there rejoicing and telling everyone in every pitch he ever went into uh, this is Ed Crick he's our token majority <laughs> and he thought that was hilarious that I was neither gay nor Oxbridge nor Jewish or black or a lesbian or a woman or a, you know he was just thought that it was wonderfully amusing to have, have me as his token majority and I found that mildly irritating but he thought that was fun and I can't really be too harsh on him because he did hire me I think three times in my career so he's a good friend he's a good man yeah and I guess in a way you're probably their resident idealist as well by the sound of it <laughs> yeah, I think, well yeah I, don't know, I'm, I'm, I think yes I think I, yes, honesty has been a strength and a failing for me but um, honesty I'm honest to a fault as they say so to get in somewhere like that and be there for two years quite early on that's quite a rare thing to be able to do and I don't think many people at the beginning of their career would be able to, to say that what do you think you were able to sort of bring, apart from the idealism and a running joke for Roy, what, what do you actually think in a very real sense, clearly you were a value, but what, what do you think it is that you brought? I would, I would, do you have to, I mean, it's difficult to answer that question without in straying into sort of vanity. Um, I don't know for sure. I worked hard. Um, I had a different tone of voice. I think I was a, I came, you know, I went to, I went to pretty rough school. Like, you know, I had a different sensibility. I think that Roy, you know, more, brought more of a plurality, weirdly, to a company called Diverse. It, it was, broadly speaking, to a lot of diverse cultural backgrounds, but they all gone to Cambridge or Oxford. And, um, and I think that there was a, an opportunity to just try and do things differently. There was a, it was at the boom, it was at the growth of um, the first few cable channels were starting to come about then. This was, this was when, you know, Indies had, had been able to set up. It was, this is 98, 99. Um, it also is about relationships. So I worked on a log show um, uh, as a researcher for uh, Andrew Connell, and I remember he got me my first pay rise because he was outraged about how little I was being paid. I think partly because the budget showed that I was being paid twice what I was, but obviously that's how Indies make their margins. So he was offended on two counts for his own budget and for my wages. So I worked for him, and then I worked on one of the shows that was one of the first reality shows um, before. This is before the internet. There was one internet in the in the diverse building it was on a modem dial up modem you had to book your slots so you couldn't really do internet casting or searching and people just started to get mobile phones in, in sort of I remember buying my first one in 98 and I worked on a show called The X-Files and they needed someone to cast it and it was the setup was it was based on the Nick Hornby book really um, uh, High Fidelity um, and about is it, I think it's High Fidelity the one where yeah, he goes back to his girlfriend yeah, yeah. to inform his present yeah. so the concept was really good um, and the casting challenge was ridiculous um, which was that you had to find people who wanted to be in a show like that then you had to track down all of their ex-partners and then you had to persuade all of the ex-partners to take part in the show so at any moment that was a house of cards pyramids would fall down and if that show had been made five years later it would have started with a casting team of eight or ten and once you'd demonstrated your casting you'd produced it but that one was crewed in reverse. Um, uh, so there was one person casting me, and then there was a team of APs, producers, and directors who were waiting for me to supply them with the cast. 
which was quite an unpleasant experience, as you can imagine. We cast it in the end. I think three of them were really good and three of them weren't aired. So I don't know if that means I was successful or not. But either way, it was an experience and Roy, Roy was very supportive of the work I've done on that. So I was open to new things. Um, I worked on a few of the cutting edge films. Uh, you know, I made myself useful and I worked hard and I enjoyed it and I was passionate. And then I think that a lot of people do that. Um, and then when the time came that, that there's freelance rolling contracts, time to move on, there was, yeah, that was fine. You know, and I was always open to freelance. I had no... No, I was always open to moving to somewhere where the challenge was new. So it was a good time at Diverse, but uh, then I, I, I left and I worked at IWC, IWC Dallas, Smithsland, and you know, moved on. Different skills and different challenges. Do you remember the moment when you felt, this is it, I'm working in television? Was there a particular programme you worked on where you felt, yeah, this, this, this is it, there's not going to be anything else for me, this is the industry I want to work in? Um... I think those moments happen at different stages in your career. So, you know, I think the first time I got a paid wage working television, which was which was the first job I was hired at Diverse, which was to make a series where celebrities read children's books. Vanessa Feltz, Linford Christie, can't remember who the others were. Um, that was real telly. It was going to go on the on the real telly, the telly box. So that felt real. I think the um, Soldier Town, which was the show that Andrew uh, O'Connell produced, uh, was was one. I think in terms of where it started to feel like I had ownership, whether whereas a bit the buck was going to start and stop with me a bit. I made a series. Well, we a team made a series called The Men Who Changed Football at BBC Two, and a lot of responsibility fell on me to deliver that. And that went out on BBC Two at you know eight pm on you know midweek. So a pretty exposed show. Uh, you know, my the classic answer people always give is you know did, could your grand have watched it? I mean, that yes, that's a show yeah. my grand shoot. They were dead, obviously, but they could have watched it. Um, uh, I think they might have been quite bored by that particular show but nonetheless that, that may be a show like that but at every yeah. stage it's not so the first time you're responsible for selling a show or the first time you're responsible as the executive producer or the first time the company you're running uh, delivers a series or the first time you get a returning series each of those are sort of stage points um, I think joining the BBC I know when I had a job at the BBC that felt pretty um, that felt you know that feels pretty substantive you know to, to work for the for the BBC felt huge um, just as it would if you were ITV or Channel 4 or, or today Sky 5, whoever, I think working for a broadcaster felt really significant. So there are lots of moments like that. Yeah. And is, do you think the BBC, in a way, for most people in the industry, is, is, is a rite of passage that people, even if they haven't, feel like it'd be great to just have an experience that world and, and get, a, get a glance on the inside? Or do you think that's less the case now? I think it is less the case now. I think it is still obviously and massively important, but I think it is less the case. Um, because... I think access, you know, the, the sense that the elitist sense of the broadcaster is eroded a bit by the self the self publishing ability to you know create and produce your own content. But of course, that that notwithstanding, I think to have to make a Saturday night primetime entertainment show on BBC is always going to be a huge or ITV, and the same with drama, and the same with factual, uh, you know, and for Channel Four as well. You know, th these are always going to be great moments. But you don't necessarily have to be employed by the broadcaster in order to feel that reflected sense of glory and, and um, importance and significance that you get from, from working there. But you'd have to ask someone who's 21 now, you know, to, you know, how important would it be for you to have a stint at the BBC? And I imagine most of them would say that would be great. And then they'd get there and they'd maybe change their opinion. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, Depends which department they're working in. Depends what their role was. It's, it's a big place. It's a big place. It's a, big place. It's a lot of people. Uh, so it's probably not an easy button you can answer sort of in one kind of fell swoop but 
from that sort of earlier period to kind of you know, running companies. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you always had in mind or were you getting to a point where it's like Ed Crick, he's, he's a man on the scene, you know <laughs> about Ed Crick and, and people start coming to you. Was there a sense of, 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 the, sort of the tie turning in that way where you know you had a start to build a reputation? I, well, I, no, I mean, the thing is, I, my reputation, good and bad, and I'm sure there's plenty bad, but um, was, was um, around being an internationalist. I, I've, all of the, nearly all of the bigger content I've made has been for international broadcasters or cable broadcasters rather than the big terrestrials in, in the UK. And that's, you know, because I'm entrepreneurial and because I had to seek out opportunities. I'd, I'd made a show at BBC... Um, uh, piloted a show did very well called um, Bank of Mum and Dad and it went to series and um, despite it going to series I decided actually on balance the best opportunity was to to leave and go and join the indie sector and I joined a really entrepreneurial independent company very focused on you know sales which was called Zigzag and uh, had a great run of success with them which led to me working for a US uh, broadcaster who hired me to work in, uh, for Discovery Channel a guy called Sean Gallagher hired me and it was a weird time, actually, because that was when David Abraham was the head of that ch- uh, TLC, it was the particular channel I was working for. Um, and off coming back from there, then we, you have that, that sort of different perspective of both producer and broadcaster. And I was at Diverse, and it got bought by Zodiac, and there was all kinds of c- constant uh, rejiggery. And there was an opportunity within the group to lead a business, that, and they wanted someone who could, who could, should, could do that. And they put me in the role, and it, and it went well. And that was, I took a job, challenger brand they had, they called Bullseye, and it, and grew it, and they grew it with a, some success, both internationally and in the UK cable sector, just making, uh, telling stories and kind of male skewed factual fact in, and it wasn't something I'd set out to do, um, but I'd always taken a keen interest in the business side of television as well as the creative side of it, because um, you can't have one without the other. Um, uh, and also, I'm, I'm happy to balance. I think, I think some people are fortunate enough through talent or opportunities, usually a combination of both, to only make perfect uh, opportunity of programming. But I sort of, you know, I was thinking, you know, Clint Eastwood, before he became a deranged, you know, gun advocate, was, you know, if he wanted to make uh, White Hunter, Black Heart or Bird, he had to make, you know, every which way but loose with an orangutan. And I think that you have to have this mixed ecology. Exactly. And he always brings things in under budget or very close to, as well, apparently. So I think makes him appealing. Well, could, and he could because he came from he came from soaps, didn't he? Wagon train, yeah, uh, wasn't it? Sort of like they'd make a hundred episodes that yeah, year in know. a day. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think that that's how I ended up in that space, and it went well, um, and and it and it was enjoyable and interesting, and you know, you feel a big sense. It's a huge responsibility. I mean, I never had owned my own business with my mortgage on the block, so I'll never know what that pressure feels like. But I do know the pressure of. Um, being responsible for bringing in the business that keeps the 20, 30, 40 people employed. And it focuses the mind. And you have to make compromises and you have to make tough decisions. And, you know, it's part of life. Did you learn anything about yourself when you started doing that for the first time? Yeah, no, I, of course. Yeah, you always learn about yourself. And I, I, yeah, definitely. I learned, I learned that I had, was probably, I always said this to everyone, I always give my bosses a harder time than my staff. I actually said that in my interview for the job I'm currently doing, and it, it caused much amusement and consternation. Um, but it's true, and actually, I think as I get older, I'm trying to be <laughs> slightly easier on my bosses, understanding their challenges, and slightly more demanding of of my staff in a nice way, but to expecting of well, my team, my colleagues, whatever the right language is. But you know, they're working with me for me, and I need to be 
I learned that I needed to be more demanding. And I had a couple of rude awakenings on that. There was a couple of people who'd really let me down. And that cost the business and it cost other people their jobs. And it was because I wasn't being uh, tough enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I learned, is to be tough downwards and more polite upwards. Perhaps I've learned that, I'm not sure. No, that's um, fair. It, it, there's nothing there from your early stint in the commune that informs your your, your kind of team approach. <laughs> I know I'm, I, I'm a big believer in collectivism, yeah. but I'm but also also you know I think you know there's there's meritocracy. So yeah, I'm not. My my father is very much a revolutionary socialist. I'm not. I'm I'm, so I'm centre left. What am I? I'm a centrist dad. Um, I believe that is a term I, around I, which I've not I've not looked up because I'm worried I might be because I, I, I feel it, it's a term of division. How is it an insult? So, so centrist basically believes in you know sensible middle ground policies that move society forward without an overnight revolution which destabilises society. Dad, which interestingly they don't say centrist parents, so patriarchy dies hard with new labour, I see. Yeah. But no, centrist dad, so father, parent, let's say, is caring and responsible. So, okay, so this is the, I'm being downed with this, fine with that. Yeah. I'm a centrist dad, bring it, that's fine. I'll, I'll look it up later, but I do feel that I'm definitely, I think being a dad comes from level of pragmatism. But uh, before we sort of uh, get lost down that, that route. Um, so what programme would you say you're most proud of having worked on or been associated with? Um, this, I think there's a, there's a few. I, I, for, there was a comedy pilot, it only was a pilot, it should have gone series, not that bitter, which I made for E4, it was Commissioner Andrew Newman, and um, it was called Think Tank, and it was a sort of hybrid comedy and... Uh, reality, so sort of the th in my mind, it was the thick of it meets uh, Beatles about, and it was bloody good. And it had Rufus Hounds in it, it was the first thing he'd done, and it was it was funny, and they loved it, and I loved it. And it was commissioned as a funny cuts, but I think comedy is a pretty uh, uh, closed shop, and uh, you know, and you see the benefit of that with the great comedy, and you sometimes see the consequence of that with really bang average comedy that gets commissioned just because mates, mates. Um, this was a really good show, uh, and it should have gone serious and maybe the lesson there was it should have been partnered with a should have partnered it with a um, a bigger commercial indie and uh, it wasn't my choice to make them because I was an employee at Diverse at the time I made that years later I made a show that I'm really proud of called Gadget Geeks which was for Sky and one and the reason I'm proud of it is just that the team that we assembled for it was fantastic behind camera and on camera and uh, there were political reasons why I never went to a second season that had nothing to do with me it was ordered uh, by Celia Taylor and Stuart Murphy was running Sky at the time and it was made by the Zodiac owned uh, Frank Brothers managed uh, Bullseye and the um, show had on camera um, Rory Reid who's now host of um, Top Gear had Colin Furs who makes he's very successful um, YouTuber and you know publishes books both of whom are now with uh, Sophie Lauren Moore as their manager their agent and Emma Barnett who's now got this uh, ITV three show and th this was all of their first shows and behind the camera you had uh, some really talented people that worked on this Mike Griffiths there's Gareth Cornick is October Laura Offer um, yeah, Jake Atwell uh, Matt Gilb Gilby and a really good team and the quality was great and the ratings were good and it was it was good um, it, it, it did what it needed to do it was populist gadget content it wasn't you know and it could coexist alongside other shows so I was proud of that I was really proud of a show called The Amazon Head Drinkers, made for Nat Geo, which absolutely smashed the ratings. It was a really sensitive um, single doc, it was uh, directed by Oscar Humphreys. It was uh, really a good show, um, which used found footage to go in search of some people in the, the you know, in a genuinely still indigenous native tri tribe in um, uh, the Amazon. 
who we did show wearing their Man United shirts, because I always think it's important, they kind of get airbrushed out with this sort of weird social anthropology style filmmaking of the 90s. It's like, no, they've got radios and they are by the river and the river is connected to the road. I mean, they do yeah. know what's There's going no on. There's no wide shots. No wide shots. No, we did wide shots, but it was really interesting. We showed them the film that had been shot there in the 1960s, and that was a really nice film. And it was huge. I mean, that's quite a buzz when you get a call from a US network and they're like, oh my God, we've had our best one hour ratings for five years. You're like, happy days. Um, so that feels creatively rewarding and, and it's also commercially rewarding because they come back to you for more. Yeah. And having had that dual experience, which not everyone would have had in their career of, of working closely with, with the US, uh, what, what differences have you sort of noticed in sort of style and in, in terms of what, what they're after and, and, and how to work best with our, our friends? Uh, it's true why it changes a lot, doesn't it? I mean, for a long time, the, they could factual producers in the US couldn't catch cold, and then they created the kind of uh, heavily constructed documentary genre, which we'll, we'll say scripted, shall we? Um, but um, that went, um, and they that that required their sensibilities to produce. And some UK companies um, tapped into that early, like Raw did with uh, with Gold Rush. Um, and others followed, and but that the US dominated that. I, I don't think there's a massive difference in, in storytelling. I think that you, you know there are certain genres that the UK do. Speaking in generalisations, certain genres the UK do better, and certain genres the US do better, and certain genres, you know, the French do better. Um, you know, expressionist dance, for example. No, no I'm joking. I mean, they they um, with the working on a, with a French production company, a really clever piece of content at the moment um, here. Um, so look, I mean, I, I'm I'm not into nationalism. Uh, so I I like to think that uh, it, storytelling is international and the skill set is international. Probably the only thing that changes is budget, because cost of living and budgets in LA are higher than they are in New York or higher than they are in London. Um, I think that's going to be challenged. Um, whatever Mr. Trump thinks, as a, over time, the democratization and internationalization of content production means budgets are going to have to get more. Normalized, and you know, and as cost of living increases in, I don't know, uh, Poland, then the cost of production is going to increase. So, uh, yes, I, I don't think there's masses of difference in terms of how you work. And it used to be that you had to pitch in a different way to Yanks and Brits, and it. People dress up all the pitching stuff. It all comes down to this. Unless you've got a magic, unless you've got a commoditized your pitch, with you know, you have a, you know, an ownable, tangible asset, be it access or talent or format that you've licensed that's already proven or etc we all know what this means then really it comes down to relationships and within that also comes down to depends on the, the commissioners you're working with most commissioners don't have final sign on and so therefore what they are working on is if I stick to the status quo no one got fired for not for, for sticking to the status quo so you need to you know if you're starting out you need to when I the work I did I always had to find commissioners who, who were looking to take a risk to make their name because getting in with the one who's making season five of a successful series is is much harder. In terms of developing stuff, when you're thinking about the kind of content and programs you want to make now, how important is the, the TV that you watch at the moment? What's your TV diet like at the moment? Do you have time to watch as much TV as you'd like? I think single people and families watch the most telly. Um, families with young children uh, and maybe retirees. I'm not, I'm, I'd have to sort of canvas, but I think sort of middle-aged working people don't watch as much telly as, as they as, as, as maybe as they used to because the working day is longer, you're on your phone working, you're consuming other kinds of media. I mean, I, I, do, watch, um, I do watch telly on the telly when it goes out live, um, uh, not just sport or news, but also uh, drama and fiction and documentary. 
I'm less engaged by factual entertainment formats. I'm more engaged by pure art forms, uh, so pure documentary or pure of stuff. I think there are obviously series, there's loads of great shows out there. Um, my diet at the moment, at this precise moment in time, would probably include, uh, I mean, I enjoy, uh, you know, these punchy dramas on BBC, Happy Valley, Dr. Foster. Um, I, with my younger son, we love watching the October Walk the Nile, Walk the Himalayas shows. They're nice, they're good boys' own adventure type content. The Last Kingdom was a drama on BBC Two I enjoyed. The SAS Who Dares Wins on Channel 4 I thought was excellent. Um, 24 Hours on A&E, you know, is always, it's always gripping. Location, 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 you know, is it's a good good format, continues to do well and it tells good stories, you know. It comes it becomes slightly pyrrhic watching it as a as a sort of parent now. I don't know if it, you know, you I don't know what my victory is. My victory is that I was born ten years earlier, but the, the consequences I'm looking at the, the pyrrhic nature of this of watching it is that I know that my children are never going to afford a house ever. They'll be living with you forever. Well, well that, that that's that's probably eventually will be my bonus, won't it, when I need care. Do you have that thing with location, 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 where you'll put it on, see where it is, and then make a value judgment about whether you'll watch it? It's like, oh, I know that town, I'll watch it. If not, yeah. I think there is a bit of that, yeah, yeah, there is. And then it's about casting, isn't it? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a point in the TV for me anymore, I'll be honest no, with you. but it's always there. But it's always there, and it's it always good. good. It's, it's a good show. Yeah. It's a good show. It's, I mean, it's like Place in the Sun always makes me laugh. When you see that on Channel 4 Photons, they always seem to cast... Is it Channel 4 Photons? I think it is. Um, and they always seem to cast... Uh, couples who they've somehow persuaded to, who are just mugging off the producers because they're so, yeah we're definitely interested in buying a holiday home in in Rhodes and then they look at three and then they buy none and they never do because basically they're getting a holiday to be stool pigeons for the program and it's like I love it I think every just, episode I've seen is, is like a timeshare in reverse yeah. but they're just yeah they're clearly like oh yeah yeah no I'm not sure and they're never in it it's like um, England Gary Glenn Ross and I think there's like Jack Lemmon's trying to sell to these people. And he says, no, 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 they just like talking to people. They're that, not, yeah. Like, they're not, they're not, they're not biased. They're not, biased. They're, they're they're not hot leads. No, they're not. Yeah. They're not. Uh, is there anything either now or, you know, kind of earlier in your career that you oh, would have loved to have worked on that programme? That fascinates me. I'd love to see how that was made. Oh, God. No, I mean, I, I'm, there are so many examples of shows I wish I'd worked on because they're, you know, they're brilliant pieces of content and creation and origination and, you know, uh, so it's funny, I, I sometimes wonder, I mean, I wish I'd maybe worked on a series of The Apprentice, because even though I always wanted to create my own show, I think to have worked on a show like that would have been a wonderful experience. And I know it's been really valuable for people who series produced it, who it's a feather in their cap and they learn a lot, even though they didn't create the format, they learned, they were inside a very polished uh, machine and The Apprentice is still a good show. I mean, obviously it's, perhaps it's past its peak, um, but it, it was great. I think. It's these pure forms, that the shows that the country talks about. So from my generation, I wish I'd worked on Spooks. My best friend, Chris Ayer, worked on, on that. Chris Ayer, who's just joined two brothers as uh, yeah. head of um, uh, 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 drama. Uh, uh, you know, to have worked on Spooks, when the whole country was watching Spooks, well, it certainly felt like the whole country were watching Spooks, would have been brilliant. Um, I think Born Survivor, which was made by my colleagues in uh, Diverse Bristol at the time, was just you know, a brilliant show with Bear Grylls. Huge budget, adventure, you know, high stakes, health and safety risks up the wazoo, traveling the world, brilliant. Um, Blue Planet uh, would have been great to work on. Who wants to be a millionaire? Imagine working on that. Colin Hutchinson, I know, and you know, he made the, the exec producer of the, many of the first series of that. How much fun would that have been? Yeah. How much fun? Um, uh, I think, you know, in comedy, it, it, the list is quite long, 
but you know, of course, it would have been fun to have been involved in. I don't know if I. I enjoyed watching and I loved watching The Office and Father Ted and there are loads of other examples I could pick but you know maybe to have been involved in producing them it's kind of a vainglorious thing to say because yes I'd love to have been involved in making Star Wars it's like well of course you would but, yes, you know, but it would have eroded the joy of watching yeah. Star Wars well, so I've had, had the yeah. talent to have been involved in it so yeah. I can say that I'd have loved to have worked in, on the other shows it's kind of I feel like I could have worked on them and contributed I'm not yeah. sure that I'd have massively contributed to uh, Father Ted I think that was pretty much down to the writing and acting yeah. of which I can do so there we are um, uh, can working on programmes sometimes take away a little bit of that magic are you ever able to watch things that you've you produced and been involved with and enjoy them in the way that uh, the audience who don't know anything about how it was made enjoy it or do you think you're able to kind of separate those things out or do you not watch things that you make uh, I do I don't really enjoy them I always think they're flawed um, I, well not always but often <laughs> maybe they always are <laughs> I think most things can be improved um, you know there are you know I don't know I'm sure when you make you know we talked about location 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 I mean I'm, I'm, I know for a fact that Hamish will probably change could change every episode that's ever been made Hamish Barber at IWC but um, the truth is people love and enjoy those shows yeah. and they do a really good job uh, have done for, for decades and they've employed and that's something people forget in our business because it's become so you know company X has consolidated and you know the whatever you know Bake Off is selling 40 million so the shows shows bring pleasure to viewers um, they also employ a lot of people and those people are part of the fabric of towns and villages and cities across the country and there's a duty of care I and mean, you look at a show like that and I kind of look at it always in that perspective I think there's a lot of really average telly made and uh, I'm not going to name shows because I'll piss someone off when I hear this and, but there are a lot of average shows made that are ju that are just they don't contribute anything but they've been, they're well known shows but they contribute nothing nothing um, and I think that if you you know if, if your show is contributing nothing creatively and if you're being tight economically and you're not really developing your talent or your off-screen talent, you're not funding them properly, what are you really doing? You know, it's, that's a different, that's, that's a content I wouldn't be proud of having made and I never have and I never will. And are there any big blind spots for you? Things you know you should watch, things that your friends recommend and you're like, oh, I'll get, I, know, I know I'll like it, I'll, but I'll get to it or, or just a blind spot generally that you perhaps will never you know, that gets talked about a lot, we like, I'm never gonna watch it. Well, I've never watched Game of Thrones, um, and I probably would like it, but I've never watched it, and now it feels a bit too late, or I could wait and watch the entire I episode. am in the same boat as you, I've never seen it, I think I would like it, people that I respect say that I would like it, but again, I worry that I've left it too late. I, I think it's, it's- And I've had spoiled, yeah. kind of, a bit. Yeah, we know, I mean, we know- And the bits. It's yeah. basically what someone said, just watch Lord of the Rings and every now and then, you know, some glamour photography shoot, and then that's basically <laughs> worst murders. Yeah, there, there's the basic. I mean, that might be a bit harsh. I'm sure it's supposed to be very, very good. So I've never seen that. But that's partly because I don't have Sky, and you can only go on HBO, and HBO is only available on Sky, and I've got VT and Virgin. So that, if I had yeah. it, I'd have watched it, but I don't. Yeah. Um, and I'm certainly not going to rip it offline because I don't believe in pirating. Um, genuinely don't. Um, I've watched loads and loads and loads of EastEnders when I'm at different stages of my life, but I have never seen. An episode of Coronation Street. Wow, I've done the seasonal thing with EastEnders. Every sort of five years, I'll, I'll go through a period of watching it, and then, and then not. But and I've seen bits. I've seen a few, but to have never seen an episode of Coronation Street uh, is fascinating. 
It's weird, isn't it? I, it's just I, I, because when cast members die, as 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 one has recently with Vera Darkworth, it's it's national front page news. And but but for you, do you even have like a sense of who's in it? Yeah, I've got a sense yeah. of who's in it, and and, yeah. like, and you know, and it's brilliant populist. Uh, it's just no, you know, it's, it's from the northern powerhouse, or as, uh, or if you live in Scotland, that's really the southern the southern powerhouse. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, no, it's I listen. There's no reason. It's not snobbery. It's no. just that I, I happened. EastEnders launched when I was a little boy, and so yeah. I watched it, and you know, Millet and Ali and all that, uh, and it, you know. It probably felt familiar. I was a Londoner and I watched it, and then I, I mean, I haven't really watched it for years. It's just not just because I don't have the time to commit to a soap opera storyline. It just is weird that I've never watched an episode of Corrie. Yeah, and then I suppose after a while it becomes like, well, there's no, there's no reason to start now. Not now. I think, uh, no, um, but I have seen, you know, I have seen an episode of Jeremy Kyle. So you know, there was half an hour of my life I'll never get back. Did you feel you got all you needed to know from that one episode? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. It's not. Um, it's not particularly edifying for anyone, is it? No, I don't think anyone necessarily leaves that feeling better about themselves, except possibly Jeremy. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, and is there anything you're looking forward to? Is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you're able to talk about, or anything that's recently out there from the Red Bull stable that you're excited about? Well, for Red Bull content, I mean, this is we are. We, we've got quite a lot of interesting projects on the go, and everyone's familiar with what we do well, which is. Um, spectacle, uh, particularly in the world of sport and events and athletes and in culture, and we always bring a you know scale and event, and it's something you can be part of or participate in, and we can capture that uh, to a greater or, or, or lesser extent on in, in the media and share it on any platform. You know, we're platform agnostic. We want to find our audiences uh, with giving the right content at the right time, in the right place. Um, I think what we're starting to do now is we're trying to increase the amount of storytelling we have within our content and we're quite selective about the content we make we're not we're not a broadcaster um, we are though developing uh, some really interesting projects with some great producers in the UK US France Germany um, that will extend the storytelling uh, and the experience we have with our audiences um, and that's you know watch this space as an internationalist, would you say this is the most international place you've got to work at? I think it probably is, yeah. I mean, it is a global brand with a global presence and a global network at, within universities, within sales and distribution, within marketing, with the, our understanding of our, of our relationship with um, the world at a local level is, is high. And we now need to convert that into building what we already do very well in terms of marketing messages and uh, content and social and short form into some some slightly longer form storytelling. And it's a tricky challenge. We're setting ourselves some quite high um, barriers. My boss, Jim Sayer, is uh, quite demanding and uh, he, he, um, his, his boss, uh, uh, Garrett Meyer, is, is demanding too. And, you know, the owner himself uh, is uh, someone who wants nothing but the best for the, for the brand. And, you know, we, 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 you know, we don't want to mess with the secret sauce. We just need to um, find a clever way of articulating. It's a fascinating brand, and in some ways, when we were sort of talking about BBC earlier about like whether that would become a rite of passage uh, for people to kind of work in that space, and Red Bull feels like one of those brands that must be very attractive. Do you find that it's able to open doors for you in the things you're trying to achieve in a way that sort of traditional production companies or broadcasters would have? Are people more interested? Is the Red Bull brand somehow stronger than some broadcasters? 
But it depends on the context. I mean, you'd have to ask the, our head of brand, uh, you know, what they think of that. From my perspective, you know, Red Bull brand is really powerful and really well liked, um, and uh, it's, it, it, you know, we're not using it to, to open doors with, uh, you know, it's, it's not like a, a route to get access to make a documentary at a hospital. I can imagine that BBC's brand would be more useful than Red Bull's for that. Yeah. Um, but um, in terms of how we, how our audience feel about it and how we work with other partners and stories we want to tell, I think it, it certainly represents a, an attitude and an approach to, um, life and it's important that we reflect that in the stories we tell um, which is a, and it you know it's a delicate process and it's a collective process and it's a work in progress fantastic thank you very much ed for your time today pleasure thanks for having me